0: We are going to be looking um, the course of the next half of the year um, straight at Jesus. And you might think to yourself, isn't that what we always do? And the answer would be yes, that's the goal. But we, I mean, I mean we're looking straight at him. Um, we are going to take a look at, um, we're going to look at various parts of the Gospels. It's been about five years since I've worked through uh, one of the four uh, Gospels. When I first got here, I spent a year and a half walking very succinctly through the um, The book of Mark, but a year and a half and succinct don't really go together, do they? Um, But we're going to be looking again at the Gospels of Jesus. We're going to do it instead of looking straight through a book of the Bible, such as Luke or John. We're going to look at it through three uh, separate series. First, we're going to look at the parables of Jesus. In particular, think about how Jesus teaches and what he says to us in his teaching. Then, around the season of Lent and leading up to Easter, we're going to do a brief series looking at the passion of Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and then resurrection. And then finally, in the late part of the spring into the early summer, we're going to look at meals with Jesus, meals with Jesus. And so I'm excited uh, to be looking straight at the person and work of Jesus our great Savior to help us understand Him better, understand why He came, understand what He came to teach and to show us. And so we begin our series the next couple months in the parables, looking at the parables of Jesus. And so we begin this morning with one of the most famous parables, although we won't look directly at it, it's a means of introduction to us this morning. We're going to look at the parable of the sower found in Mark chapter 4. It's also found in Matthew chapter 13, which is where we'll look at it next week. But this week we look at Mark chapter 4. So turn your Bibles there. We're going to read from verses 1 through 12. And he began to teach. This is verse 1 in Mark 4. And he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing in yielding thirtyfold and sixty-fold, and a hundredfold. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was done, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Since the reading of God's holy and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, um, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, um, whether you're kind of from a layman's perspective or even from the scholastic world, and perhaps even more from the scholastic world, the thinking about Jesus is there's a divide as to whether he was truly God. Christians believe he was God in the flesh. Those who don't believe in Jesus obviously don't believe that, but both Christians and non-Christians generally agree about Jesus, about this one thing, that he is one of the greatest teachers who ever lived. He's one of the greatest teachers who ever lived. And Jesus' preferred mode of communication, of discourse, are these things called parables, parables. Now, Jesus didn't invent parables. He was not the first to use parables. In fact, the, in fact, it was the tradition of the Pharisees and the rabbis of the time to speak and teach in the use of parables parables. There are even a few instances of parables in the Old Testament. The most notable is when the prophet Nathan comes to confront David over his sin with Bathsheba and the adultery that he committed against her and then the subsequent murder of her husband. And Nathan comes and tells David a parable about a rich man who steals a poor man's singular sheep. And he uses that to confront David. But even with that understood, the main place we see parables used is in the Gospels, is in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus. Parables are all over the place within the Gospels and within the teaching of Jesus. They come in many and varied forms. For example, there are parabolic similes. Similes, it's a part of literature. Similes are like the ditzy teenage communication of literature. Like totally, like I love it, like totally, it's awesome. And by that I mean similes will almost always use the word like. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It is like a fig tree. It is like leaven. That's parabolic similes. Then there are also these things called allegorical parables. For The one we read today is an allegorical parable. You may be familiar with allegory. C.S. Lewis's works on Chronicles of Narnia is an allegorical story where each of the various main characters represents something within real life or is symbolic in some way. And what we see today, the parable we read in the parable of the sower, is an allegory in which each of the main characters, the sower and the various four seeds, represents something. There's a specific representation of something. And if you want to stretch it, you can even say there are metaphorical parables, right? A metaphor equates one object or person with another. For example, Jesus is constantly using various images and metaphors to speak of himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. He's, he often is using that in the book of John. And in fact, here in, in Mark chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 13, later on, what we hear is it says this, that Jesus never spoke without using parables. He was always using parables. So before we look at any one or any individual uh, parables of Jesus. Where next week, we're going to look at the parable of the sower specifically in the Gospel of Matthew or Mark. The next couple of months, it behooves us to first introduce ourselves to parables. And I thought this was going to be a quick and easy thing. I thought I was going to start with the parable of the sower this week. I was going to dive in into my introduction. I was going to very quickly give you a brief definition as to what a parable is. And then I, tried to, I actually started to study them. And I went, uh-oh. I really found out that even with all my years, my 37 years of living in a Christian home, my three or four years of master's level education in seminary, that my now 10 years of being an ordained minister of the gospel, that I knew what a parable was. I was wrong. I did not know what a parable was. We would think it is easy question to assume that we know the answer to, but we got to ask the question, what in the world are parables? What are parables? That's the first thing we're going to look at. Perhaps, perhaps the etymology of parables. The, the etymology, you know, it's the, the history of a word, the development of a word, its background. Maybe that will help us figure out what in the world a parable is. It, the Hebrew word, for example, for parable is the word mashal. And it literally means proverb or riddle. That's what a parable is. That The word Mashal was used to describe an illustration of, of wisdom or a riddle of wisdom. And then the Greek word may help us as well. The Greek word that is behind parable is the word parabolo. It, that has two parts to it, right? Para, which is a prefix. And para means, what does para mean? You should know what para means. You use it all the time, right? Paralegals, parachutes, paraministries. Para means alongside, alongside. And balo means to throw. So parable in the Greek, parabolo, that word, means alongside, to throw alongside. In other words, it is, as you're teaching and communicating, you throw a parable alongside your propositional statements to illustrate what it is that you're talking about. That's what you'd say parables are. That's what many of us would say parables are. Parables are illustrations, right? It's been said in real estate that there are three radically important factors when determining the value of a property, right? What is it? Location. Location, location. And the value in the equipping of a preacher or a teacher and how good they are is determined by what? Illustration, illustration, illustration. So, it's been said that preachers should only talk in stories. We should use illustrations. That's what, what. do we use them for? To clarify, to heighten, to bring to life, to bring to, to crystal clarity before other people in real life situations and in things earthy uh, stories that they can understand the propositions. And you, so you see, you said to me, "See, that's not so hard, Andrew." Our parables are illustrations. They're stories. They're sweet illustrations that Jesus used. In order to tell people about the kingdom and about their Christian life and tell them about who God is, see, that's not so hard. See? Well, yes, on the first look, that's what it would appear to be so until you actually look at parables and you actually reflect on people's reactions to the parables. It reveals this that almost every time Jesus used a parable, everybody walks away scratching their heads and going, I don't know what he was saying. I don't understand. Many parables, in fact, did not please anybody. It didn't enliven anybody's understanding of what Jesus was saying. And and many of them were not agreeable at all. And most, upon further review, caused great confusion and often a a, a disconnection to clarity. And this was Jesus' main teaching tool. And his main teaching tool, every time he used it, people went away going, I don't think I know what he's he's talking about. Remember, we must read the parable of the sower and Jesus' own disciples. You look at that and they go... We don't, Jesus, we could use an explanation. Now, we look at the parable of the sower, and we go, of course, because we have the background of Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 4, where Jesus comes back, and he explains it to us, and if you grew up in church, you've heard the stories of the parable of the sower, so you assume you already know what it means, but to the original hearers, they looked at it, even as followers, and says, "We no comprende, we don't get it. Think about that. If Jesus Christ's public parables, his illustrations, his means of, of, of illustrating and clarifying what he was teaching, weren't, uh, they, they required explanations all the time, then they really weren't that clear, were they? And he wasn't that great of a teacher. If Jesus' parables were merely sermon illustrations, then he was actually a terrible teacher. If you have to explain your illustration, your illustration is no good. And the gospel writers, in fact, go out of their way to point out that even even when Jesus explains his parables to his disciples, they still don't get it. For example, in in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives some parables, and then it says, I'm talking about my death. And his disciples look, look at him, and here's what it says in Luke chapter 18, verse 34. And the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. That should be on the church, all of our church marquees, right? Now, that's the kind of church you'd actually want to go to. I want to go to the church where they actually admit that they don't really know what's going on. So even though it may seem, parables may seem or look like illustrations, it appears that parables just seem to cause a whole bunch of problems for Jesus and for his teaching. So why in the world did he speak in parables? Why all the riddles and the confusing stories? Well, he gives us an answer. At least in regards to non-believers, what he's doing for those who don't follow him. Jesus says this, his his disciples come to Jesus and they say, "Uh, Jesus, why do you speak in parables so often? And Jesus looks at them and what does he say in verse 11 and 12? He said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables So that, and he quotes Isaiah 6, "...they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And what, he, what he's doing there is he's quoting the call of Isaiah to gospel ministry, to prophetic ministry. If you remember the call in Isaiah chapter 6, it's this unbelievable scene where uh, t- uh, Isaiah is worshiping in the temple, and suddenly God shows up, and it's this unbelievable scene. I mean, it's better than any New Year's conference you've ever been to. There's smoke, and angels with six wings show up, and eyes all over their body, and Isaiah loses his ever living mind. And then Jesus asks this question He says, It's time for the altar call, to the call to missions. And he goes, Isaiah, who will go to me for me and, and tell these people about who I am? And Isaiah goes, be, pick me, I'll do it. And just as he's about to go out, Jesus says, God says, listen, there's a little bit of um, small print I forgot to tell you about. And it's this. You're going to be a prophet of judgment, which means you're going to go call people to repent and you're going to share with them the good news. And I'm going to use it as nothing but a means but to harden their hearts because they're going to reject you. They're not going to listen to you. They will not turn. They will not repent. And you know what Isaiah's next question is? How long do I have to do this? And Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 13, he says, my ministry is the fulfillment of Isaiah's ministry. I'm going to come, and when I teach, people are not going to understand. And even when they do understand, they're going to reject me. And then we're going to eject what I teach so that, so that now they have no excuse. And now my teaching may be used as a means of hardening their hearts further and they may actually be found guilty at judgment. So what is going on? Parables to those who don't have ears to hear are actually an instrument of concealment. Parables are absolutely, actually obscure the truth. There was a uh, four-volume um, series. Uh, kind of like to read historical fiction novels when I was a kid, and uh, there was one called *Journey Through the Night*. It was about situations in, in Holland, the Netherlands, during World War II, when the Germans were occupying the country. And, and there was a situation where, in one of the stories, a farmer named a farmer named Vandermeij, called up another local farmer named De Boer, and he said, "De Boer, I have some puppies for you." Can I deliver some puppies to your house later on today? Now... That, you know, if you were to hear that, if you were tapping their phones and you were to listen to that, you would go, well, That's not, I guess, that odd for farmers that they have a, a lot of dogs. So maybe, you know, one farmer is speaking to another. And so it's important, it's, it's more complicated than that, right? Because the, 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 the historical novel is talking about when the, the Nazis are tapping their phones and they're listening to the phone conversation between Mr. Vandermeer and Mr. DeVore. And when they're talking about puppies, are they really talking about puppies? Well, of course they're not talking about puppies. They're talking about, he meant Jews that need to be hidden that they're moving from house to house to keep the Nazis away from It was a code. In other words, the term putzies was there not to reveal, but to conceal. But to conceal the truth. It was a truth that was hidden from them. And that's what the parables are. They are not little quaint, earthy, all-shuck stories that all make us feel good and warm inside and have an emotional, uplifting feeling that just kind of carries home the story and the point of the day. No, no, no. No. Parables... Cerebles are stories for people to understand and to hear God's judgment down upon them. All right, so that's that's for unbelievers. And that's really disconcerting and not very satisfying, but at least we have an answer there. But what about believers? What about believers? You say, well, well to them, he has been, he's using illustrations so that they would understand the gospel better, right? To non-believers, it's so that they would, they would be confused and, and they, 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 the truth would be concealed from their hard hearts. But to believers, it would be to reveal it. And yet, who is it that's constantly asking the questions and don't seem to understand what's going on? It's all Jesus' followers, his disciples who are scratching their heads and going, uh, uh, listen, they look at each other and the, Jesus told another parable and they go, do you know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking. I don't know why he tells these stories. You go ask him. I don't want to ask him. I asked him last time. Now you start to see the real frustration with parables. Jesus, why? Here's what you want to say about parables. We actually get into them. Here's what you're going to find yourself wanting to say. Jesus, why don't you just come out and say what you want to say? Why do you have to obscure the propositions and the stories? Just say, I'm the king. I'm God. Follow me. Why do we need so? Just say the kingdom of God is this. Not like this and talk about mustard seeds and leaven. I don't understand that. It gets confused in my head. Just say what you want to say. You see... I mean, you give us these stories that talk like us, these characters that talk like us, and they walk like us, and it, you draw us in, but then, but then all these stories have this twist that really confuses us, and it makes us really frustrated, and we don't know what to do with it, and it kind of makes us wonder what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. Now, think with me. What have you just described And your agony over parables? Frankly, you've described your own reactions to your life. See, most people have described or illustrated or um, defined parables as this, as they are, they are earthy or down-to-earth stories that give a, a, a spiritual moral, a teaching. That is true, but they're down-to-earth for a reason, because they reflect our lives. How do we live our lives most of the time? Most of the time, we just kind of b-bop through life, doing our thing without a whole lot of thought. I mean we, we do, I mean, we think about math problems, but I mean like big questions without much of a sense of a greater purpose. We, we, we kind of live as if we have life figured out, we have a direction, we have our assumptions and our presuppositions about how life is supposed to work, and indeed how church is supposed to work, and how God is supposed to interact with us, and we have our assumptions, and, and we live our life that way. We don't think, we don't ask questions, and we just kind of bebop and bump along until what? Until God gets our attention. And most often, he does that. He throws us a curveball. Until there's something in our life, we don't ask these questions until there's something in our life that throws us a curveball, and our assumptions are questions about life they are challenged. Usually, it's through some sort of suffering, isn't it? God rouses us through the loss of a job, or maybe a failed relationship, or the, the sudden loss of a loved one, or the destruction of our reputation. And we go, wait a second what's going on? What do we do? We go to God and what do we say? God, I don't like that twist in the story. My life was bebopping along just fine. I was living my simple West Georgia Carrollton life. I had my three-bedroom, two-bath, white picket fence. I had a good relationship with you. I was involved in my church and you put this twist in the story. I don't get it. What's the deal with the story of my life? What kind of parable are you writing here? See, we get challenged because our assumptions, the very things that we have presupposed and built our life upon, suddenly gets questioned, gets challenged, and we begin to ask ourselves some deep and significant questions. You know, the people in Jesus' day didn't want anything to do with them. The religious leaders in particular were very, very angry with Jesus, and they didn't like his parables. Why? Because they had a vision of what the kingdom of God would look like, and when Jesus came and described to them what the kingdom of God would look like, it looked like nothing that they wanted it to be. They had a vision of what the Messiah would look like, and when the Messiah showed up and said, this is what the Messiah is like, and this is what your God is like, it wasn't the God that they really wanted to serve, and it wasn't the Messiah that they really wanted See, they were happy without asking questions. They were happy with their assumptions about how, thing work, how things work, how the relationship with God worked. And Jesus is coming in and he is disrupting the apple cart, and now they're mad. Now they're really mad. Eugene Peterson calls the parables subversive spirituality. They're undercutting all of our assumptions. C.H. Dodd, who's a well, a prominent theologian in writing about the Gospels and the New Testament wrote this about parables. He said, A parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life arresting the hearer by its vividness and it, or its strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt of its precise application. Here's the punchline. In order to tease it into active thought. You see, Jesus is a poet He's an artist, he's a playwright, and every artist knows and understands this, that if you want to win people over to your position, you rarely do so with a full frontal assault. Think about this. How does Nathan, in the most prominent parable of the Old Testament, confront David? Does he walk into the palace and go, David, you committed adultery with Bathsheba and you murdered her husband. That's bad. No. What's he do? He leads David to repentance via what? A story. Hey David, let me tell you a story. See if this sounds I don't know, vaguely familiar. It's about a guy, he's really wealthy, has all the power. He has a guy next to him, like not too far, like so close to him that he could look into his backyard at his bathing area. And he has a sheep, a little sheep that the family just loves. Sheep, and then that rich man one day, though, came. He had a visitor, and he wanted to have a, a big feast, and he wanted to serve lamb. And instead of going and picking for one of the thousands of lambs that he has, he went over and he stole that poor man's one singular sheep, and he slaughtered it and gave it to his guest. Now, what do you think about that man? Well, he should die. You are the man. How do you think that affected David? It's a provocative story that cuts under all of our defensiveness. It, it woos us in with its earthiness and then cuts our legs out from underneath us. It makes us laugh and pull our heads back. And then while our heads are back laughing, he pours hot, scalding water down our throats. That's what parables do. They get your attention. They're provocative of stories. And you see, if Jesus came and says, listen, if he came in his day and age and talked about the kingdom, he says, hey guys, the, the kingdom of God, uh, it's, it's, I need to challenge your assumptions. Those who get in the kingdom are this. I need to make sure you understand this. It's, it's not all the good people get into the kingdom of God, and, and sometimes some bad people will get into the kingdom of God. And they would go, yeah, 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 yeah. But by the grace of God, go I. You know, in and, and some sort of spiritual trope, they would say to, to Jesus. But if Jesus comes and he says, okay, Hugh Hefner and Andrew Henley walk in the temple one day. And Andrew Henley speaks in all of his spiritual grandeur, prays out to the Lord, oh, but by the grace of God go I. I'd be like Hugh Hefner. And then Hugh Hefner beats his chest. and cries out before the Lord. The people go, wait a second, what's, what's Hugh Hefner doing in the parable? And then Jesus comes to the end and he says, he's more likely to be justified than Andrew is. And, they go, and then he like, he just what? He boom, mic drop, walks off the stage. And everyone's like going, wait, a, wait, a, hold on. That's why You notice how Jesus always has crowds following him? Because they're always like, wait, what? What's going on? We don't get it. We don't understand. What are you talking about? So you see, the parables are there to provoke and to challenge us, to challenge our thinking. For the purpose of getting us, for some, for some the challenge to challenge and provoke your thinking in such a way that you are so mad. You're so mad at the way it challenges your status quo that you reject it out of hand. And for others... For others to challenge your thinking so much that you actually begin to consider in a deeper way, in a more full way, the truth of God and his kingdom. So I asked like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, this very simple question. What are parables? We finally come to it. Here's your definition. Parables, I'll leave it up on the screen for a little bit. Parables are down-to-earth stories that surprise Provoke and unsettle hearers with the purpose of challenging their thinking so that hearers are more fully drawn into either a wholehearted acceptance or a wholehearted rejection of God's truth. Parables. Parables are down-to-earth stories that surprise, provoke, and unsettle hearers with the purpose of challenging their thinking so that the hearers are more fully drawn into either wholehearted acceptance or wholehearted rejection of God's truth. There's your definition. That's what we're going to be looking at. Now, we don't have much time, so we're not going to dive into a parable this morning, and so we're simply just going to ask a second question. What are we to do with parables? What are we to do with them? I have three things, three points I want you to make. You're going to find that they're really redundant. The first thing you need to do with parables is you need to listen. Listen. You see, teaching on the parables, the great challenge that we have, the immediate obstacle that we face for many of you is that we're just so darn familiar with them. I mean, even our hospitals are called what? Good Samaritan Hospital. It's even in our vernacular, prodigal, Good Samaritan, the sower. We think because we have heard these stories, we already know them and we already know what they mean. The prodigal son, the Samaritan, so memorable, so vivid, so simple, and so clear. And yet, these, as we look at these stories, we're going to find they're really not that simple and they're, really, they're not that clear often. And in fact, they're, they're very confusing at times. I mean, let's think about what Jesus is doing here. This is a parable. In Luke chapter 20, actually, in another place, not Mark 4 or, or Matthew 13, but Mark, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is coming to his disciples, and he's sharing um, uh, these, these para, a parable. And they had, the, he's doing it in front of chief priests and scribes and Pharisees who had questioned his, his authority to perform mighty deeds. And at the end of the parable, Jesus looks at them and challenges them. He says, you have not listened to me one bit. You think you know, but you don't know. You think you know, but you don't know. Do you know? Do you actually know the parables? Second point, second thing to do, what are we to do with parables? The second thing is this. The second thing we're to do with parables is we're to really listen. (laughs) (laughs) And by that I mean this, When you read the parables, are you willing to think? Are you willing to think? In fact, there's multiple parables where Jesus will give the parable and at the end of it, he will ask questions and then he'll simply walk off the stage. In other words, the parables are there to force you to question your assumptions and your presuppositions about life. Will you really think about the implications of this? Will you really allow it to challenge how you thought about the Christian life? And you're going to need to think about the parables, because it's, it's, they're difficult. I mean, we're going to look at Matthew 13 for the first half of this whole series, and in Matthew 13, Jesus is going to keep saying the kingdom of God is like, and it's going first it's going to be like the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. No, it's like a sower. No, it's actually like, um, it's actually like a fig tree. No, it's like two sons. No, it's like four soils. No, it's like bread. And you're gonna, by the end of it, you're gonna go, what? You're gonna have to think. You're gonna have to think hard. Actually, actually engage and not assume when you come to the text that you know what it's talking about. And third, you're gonna have to get this. You have to really, really listen. (laughs) In Mark chapter 4, verses 3 and verse 9. Jesus begins the parable in Mark 4. Not in Matthew 13, it's not given this way. But in Mark 4, it's given the first word is Jesus says to them, listen. And in the last way, he ends the parable of the sower. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. It's a com- like a command. And it's the same word, both of them. It's the word akuain. Akuain. Akuo. It's where we get the word acoustics. To hear. He's commanding them to hear. And yet, they don't appear to hear. Now, there's an interesting twist in the Greek language. Akuain. You know what the word for obedience is in Greek? It's hupo, kuain. In other words, you want to know where I got my points? Hupo means super, above, beyond. Think Superman, hyper, hupo, hupo kuain, which means if you are really hearing, if you're really, really listening, it means you do what? You obey. You see, this is the difficulty with Jesus' teaching. Listen, you can listen, and that you can actually begin to you listen actually listen with your auditory system, and you can really listen, which is you can work hard to try to understand. But the key one is: Are you really, really listening? In Luke chapter 20 that I just talked about a second ago, Jesus is talking in front of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and he, they're questioning his authority to do mighty deeds. And he says this in chapter 20 verse 19. At the end of giving a parable, it's a parable called the parable of the tenants. It's one of the most scathing and difficult parables that Jesus will ever present. We're going to look at it near the end of this series. It's, almost, it's right before he goes to his death. It's about a, about a man who owns a farm, and he's got tenants who are, who are farming that land, and the, the, the owner sends his son to gather the proceeds and the profits from the farm for that year, and they kill the son, and they send him away, or they, and they bury him. And here's what the response of the scribes and the Pharisees was to this parable that Jesus tells them. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him that very hour. Why? For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They listened, they really listened, they had it correct, but they didn't really, really listen. The irony of it is this, what is it they begin to do? That they know that they are the point of the parable, and the very point of the parable is saying, you're going to kill the Son of God, and their response to the parable is not to go repent and change their perspective and how they live their life, instead what is it to do? To live in to the very thing that Jesus said that they were going to do. Why? Because they would not listen. One scholar said this. They realized that the parable was directed against them. But in their rage, they could not see that in their disobedience, they were fulfilling the very thing for which the parable condemned them. Here's the warning here. You can listen. You can think. And you can follow the parable to the point of knowing what Jesus is actually saying, but then there is obeying what he says. There is living in light of the implications of what Jesus calls us to in the parables. When Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear, Jesus is not questioning the auditory ability of your ears. No, he is talking about the auditory ability of your human heart that are my words, you may understand my words cognitively and get what I'm saying, but you are not embracing them with your heart. No, he's talking about people who have an ability to hear and understand and embrace the truth. That's what he longs for. And so when Jesus gives this statement, he who has ears, let him hear. He is simply making the point that there are those who are listening to him who don't really hear. And some of you, this is you. Because the people for whom this was, they were most guilty of this were church people. It was the church people who had said, I've heard this. I saw this parable on a flannel board when I was four years old. I've heard this every year of my life. I know these stories, and I reject it out of hand. In particular, the stuff about the kingdom of God, because that makes me really uncomfortable. See, it was the Pharisees who rejected it. They thought they knew. They had all the Bible skills, to even the artistic ability to understand what the parables were saying, but they didn't really listen. To really listen, to super listen, is to obey. See, what does it mean to understand, for example? To really understand. Well, you know, the simplest definition of understand is what? Stand under. Stand under. Which means this. That if we're going to understand, if we're going to listen, and we're going to obey the parables, you must come with a heart of standing under the parables. That I'm going to come with a heart that says, I want to submit to the teaching of Jesus. This is the exact reason why Jesus' parables ended up being a means of judgment because the people come, we don't come to the parables with a blank slate. We come to the parables with hearts, either say, I hate him and I don't want to hear what he says, or I only want to hear what he says if it has something to do about how great my life can be. But if I, he says something that I disagree with, then I'm not going to submit to that. The parables mean we must learn to listen to the voice of Christ. And we must come with a heart that says, "My, I'm your sheep, and I long to hear your voice, and I come to sit underneath your teaching. You conclude this way, this is not just about whether the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom or about the Christian life, whether you'll get those. This goes goes much further than that. You see, just as the parables are that which challenge and provoke and bring us to a point of crisis and ask the question, will we listen? Well, the greatest parable of all is the story of the gospel. A true parable, not a make-believe one. A historical parable. It's entitled The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And this parable comes with the same purpose. To challenge us with a person. And that person's name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, there's an interesting word that is used around the advent of Jesus Christ. Around his incarnation about Jesus' coming into the world. It is this word, this Greek word, krisis. And literally the word krisis means Judgment. That when Jesus comes into the world, we think of like, you know, sweet baby Jesus and peace and love and hope and joy, and, 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 and that's great, and that's very much true, but when he actually comes, most of the prophets and the people around him are kept using this word crisis, judgment. We bring it over into our language, and we use that Greek word as what? Crisis. In other words, when Jesus came into the world, he was bringing a crisis with him. That is what the advent of Jesus is about, the greatest crisis that ever occurred is the advent of Jesus Christ. This is why Simeon, when he actually, this male man who meets Jesus in the temple, when Jesus is just a baby, he says this, this Jesus has come for the rising and the falling of many people. Now bear with me here. Follow me. Jesus, it says, is the rock of stumbling and the stone of offense. It says this in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 through 10. Fall along. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This all sounds like parabolic language, doesn't it? Metaphorical language. And a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense. Why? They stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what is Jesus? Jesus is a crisis for all of us. He comes in and he questions your assumptions about how you're saved and how you do life and what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God. He comes in and questions those. And for those who are willing to listen, who will receive it, he is the aroma of salvation. But to those who oppose him, it's a completely divide, right? For those who oppose him, he is the aroma of death. The parables were a dividing point. They're a rock of stumbling, and so is Jesus. Just as a parable makes you challenge, is there to challenge you, it provokes you to a point of thought and a decision. So Jesus is the parable that provokes us to a point of thought and decision with your life. Being faced with a person and work of Jesus ought to bring you to a crisis point. The real Jesus, not the make believe one up you have up in your head. Jesus is the parable of the gospel, right? Jesus comes to divide, Jesus comes and provokes, Jesus draws us in like a great story. Jesus tells us what God is like. He's a parable. He's a parable. So, this whole next six months, we're going to look at the person and work of Jesus. But as we do that, here's a critical question. It's the critical question Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Those who are serving the Lord's Supper, you can come forward. Come sit in the front row. Oh, here's Heavenly Father. I, and Spirit of the living God, I, this is one of those places perhaps where I've been the rest of the week, and maybe now I've just kind of drawn everybody else into my own confusion. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would hover over this place. And just as you took the earth when it was formless and void and made something beautiful, that Lord, you would take all the questions that were asked this morning the penetrating challenge of what, of what it is to listen to Jesus and you would do something with that within our hearts. Lord, we are a people who love to be entertained. We like, we're so used to coming to church and sitting and facing in the same direction and nodding our heads and less audibly here saying our amens and then never thinking about what we hear. So, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray this prayer. I pray that you would agitate our souls, agitate us with the truth of Jesus and the beauty of who he is and the challenge of his kingdom. And that, Lord, in the course of the next couple weeks and months, that, Lord, you would leave us, You would not leave us unchanged, that you would leave us for a, make us a people who are more wholeheartedly devoted to your truth and to your kingdom and to your glory.